Welcome back to another episode of Sketch Nerds, brought to you by Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. Here on Sketch Nerds, we break down sketch comedy. What works, what doesn't work, what we like, what we don't like, and why. Today, we're going to be discussing sketches from With Bob and David and Clark and Daw. You can find information about this podcast, as well as the sketches we are going to be discussing, at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketchnerds. Joining me, as always, are Seth Alcorn and Julian Morgan. I'm Andy Weld. Today, we have a guest host, Shoah Appleman. Hello, hello. Hello, Shoah. And we also have a first-time guest, Luke Hennig. Luke, how are you doing? Hi, everybody. Doing terrifically. Did I get your name right? Yeah. Yes. Thanks for having me. Of course. Now, Luke, can you tell us about your background in comedy? My background. My first attempt at doing comedy was actually a podcast with my friend Omar back in 2012, back before it was cool. But we, uh, you know, learned the hard way that it's not as easy as it looks. And so we quit and started doing improv in front of uh, live audiences the year after. Wasn't long after I joined The Lodge, a local Washington, D.C. indie improv troupe. It's still kind of my main gig. I did run with Bad Medicine, though, for oh, did you? a little while. Oh, wow. Yes. Starting with... We're a tough crowd, and you ran with us. Yeah. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm, for like one year. I'm like the cast member that's there for one year, and then... Well, Luke was really uh, valuable to us in the um, the rumble with Brick Penguin that we had. Oh, yes. Yeah, that was, that was very important. We established that we get everything south of M Street. <laughs> <laughs> I, I wanted to remember, though, that my first... Sketch with Bad Medicine was being cast by Seth in a sketch called Pagan Joe. What is Pagan Joe? I want Seth to explain <laughs> Pagan Joe. Uh, Pagan Joe, like uh, like many other writers, I'm motivated by irritation and annoyance. And um, door-to-door proselytizing has always irritated the uh, the crap out of me, even though I've only been on the receiving end of it a couple of times. So Pagan Joe is a sketch about a pagan who goes door-to-door uh, trying to convert people to various types of paganism uh, by touting the really fun things that you can do in pagan holidays. In this case, it was um, Valentine's Day. I'm not going to go into it, but uh, it was originally a Roman holiday, and it involved uh, orgies and um, eating barbecue, essentially. I think most Roman holidays were that. Yeah, yeah, there was a few of them. I mean, Except this... for the movie, Roman Holiday. Except for the movie, Roman Holiday, which was about being on a Vespa and saying, ciao. Well, it was really fun. I played like a totally straight character, and that's where I met Shoah as well. Indeed. She, I was in that sketch too. It was an honor. I think the first sketch I was in as well with Bad Medicine. All right. Yay. We let Seth do most of the talking. Yes. <laughs> uh, we played I was, the shocked couple. I was Pagan Joe. Uh, and that was uh, certainly my first sketch show that I was in. So it's sort of a sort of a reunion. Oh, it's like a primordial throwback. It, it, it certainly was. And especially because Pagan Joe was wearing a caveman costume. There we go. Perfect. All right, now to introduce our first sketch today, it's Luke. That's right. The interrogation sketch comes from the second episode of With Bob and David, the 2015 Netflix original series that reunites the cast and writers of Mr. Show 20 years after that landmark sketch show's debut on HBO. In it, a familiar good cop, bad cop routine is turned on its head when the interrogatee played by Jay Johnston, stumbles into the middle of a spat between two emotionally fragile officers. 
played by Bob Odenkirk and David Cross. It's a painfully simple setup that reaps huge laughs thanks to sharp writing and remarkably sensitive performances by Cross and Odenkirk. All right, here's a clip. Don't want to talk, huh? I don't know nothing. Oh, yeah? Well, here's what I know. No more coffee, no more smokes. Where's Valentino's hideout? All right, I get it, I get it. You're the asshole cop. Yeah! Wait, what? <laughs> I get it, I get it. You know, he comes in here acting all nice and acting like he cares, and you come in here with the asshole cop act. You said you were an asshole, and you are. He said I was an asshole? <laughs> yeah. More said that? Yes. Okay, Luke, tell us uh, why you brought us this sketch today. Oh, well, I'm completely biased and partisan. I'm someone who thinks that Mr. Show is the greatest sketch co- show of all time. Um, so you went with a different sketch show. Right. <laughs> <laughs> well, I know you guys had already done the uh, David Cross uh, pre-taped Colin call-in show, show yeah. sketch. And Mr. Show is certainly famous for those kind of um, subversive uh, experimental plays on sketch forms, but I would also argue that Mr. Show are the best in the game at actually quite straight-laced, down-the-middle, simple sketches. I mainly attribute this to Bob Odenkirk, who, you know, cut his teeth in, on SNL. He was a writer with, like, Jim Downey, Conan O'Brien, Robert Smigel, right? This kind of sketch I'm talking about is, like, it could be performed very simply on a stage with very minimal uh, backdrop. Uh, it relies on zero pop cultural reference, uh, zero celebrity impressions, no news of the day. These kinds of things like are evergreen, they live on. And uh, I just think that this sketch is a perfect example of it. It does happen to come on their reunion show 20 years later, but that just kind of, I think, further proves my point that these guys were masters at this really simple sketch formula. And uh, I just think it's absolutely hilarious. One of the things that stood out to me, and and you mentioned this, is this... um this subversion, and we, you know, talked about pre-taped call and talk show being a, like an extreme subversion, and and I think this is a subversion of the uh, of the good cop bad cop um, ethic, and uh, of course, and I think it's it's executed really well. And let's kind of delve into the writing a little bit, Seth. What makes David Cross and Bob Odenkirk and the writers of Mr. Show and with Bob and David so good at subversion? What's the key to that? Honestly, the key to it is being willing to take a risk. As uh, you 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 have to do that in order to in order to step out and truly subvert something. You have to you have to take a look at the form and you have to be willing to say, "Okay, we know this works, but why don't we show essentially take it apart, show why it works, put it back together in a different way?" and uh, run with it to see if we can get it to um, do what we want it to do. I, I also want to say that uh, in order to do this well, and they do, you have to be really good at doing the original thing. Like if, if somebody just said, hey, here's good cop, bad cop as an idea, and now what, what's actually going to happen is that these two guys are essentially going to be in a domestic dispute and the um, uh, the criminal, the suspect, is going to solve it for them. With five minutes lead up, it's it's going to be terrible. But uh, as, as Luke mentioned, they are masters at their craft and are able to uh, write and perform a really, really funny sketch. I was wondering, though, if do they, do they take the subversion a little too far? Because then you also have the criminal who's sp- supposed to sets up as a, you know, uncooperative interrogate T Inter- interrogate T yep. interrogate T interrogate 
No. <laughs> um, and, and, so, and, and, and then turns out he actually cares about their relationship. For me, that's like two unusual things happening at the same time. And because, you know, the writers for the show are really good, it does actually kind of work. Uh, but I wonder, like, is, is it too much, though? Like, do, and, and does the criminal need to solve the problem? Show, what do you think? Uh, the criminal should probably solve the problem if it adds to the humor. So at that point, if it's heightened and there's nowhere to go, it makes sense to turn it over to the criminal as a last resort. So in sketches, we've talked about ending sketches before. That seems like a logical end because if these two have already heightened, where do you go from there? Give it to the third character. It's an easy out. But you make a good point. Should they do it? Should they take that easy out? I mean, sketch writing, that's one of the biggest challenges, ending your sketch. Yeah, and, and it kind of like, so like what it, it escalates and then it gets faster, the pacing gets faster. But then when the criminal tries to solve the problem, it's like it kind of slows down dramatically, right? And then the last quarter of the sketch is just kind of like, hey, come on, guys, you know? Luke, what did you think about the ending? Yeah, let's start with the ending. Well, you know, we're going to jump around. <laughs> yeah. No, I can barely defend the ending of this. It slows way down because there's this resolution where Jay Johnston has them apologize to each other. But both things are true. It's also incredible heightening about yeah, the beats of the sketch get shorter and shorter, like you said, Julian. But then, but then they square off with guns, and Jay Johnston becomes the—he's the, been the mediator the whole time, but now he's—it's a heated— um, violent dispute and it's the most hilarious shot where he takes the yeah. guns from them and sets them aside you saw yeah. they got a huge laugh so and th and then he says things like guys i was just playing hard to question you know <laughs> it's like there are further jokes about um that still kind of fit the interrogation scene it, it it's kind of uh, yeah. all the wheels are off at that point but um I don't know. Sketches are hard to end. You yeah. guys know really hard to end. I, I did like that justification, though, where he's like, I thought you guys were doing your routine, good cop, bad cop. I was doing my routine, hard to interrogate. And that's a great justification. And that's how he's calming them down, as if anyone would calm people down in an argument. So yeah. That's actually a little bit... Um, I think it's a little. that's a little bit of extra subversion for me, and it's something that I noticed that they did in with Bob and David, I want to say more frequently than they did on Mr. Show, which is break the fourth wall to some extent. Uh, and this was a fairly subtle uh, way of doing it, but the idea that we all know good cop, bad cop, so they're doing their thing, they're playing their roles in good cop, bad cop, and he knows what his role is. His role is to be the guy who doesn't want to give up the information, but eventually does. And to me... I understand that the end of the sketch slows way down, but that makes it okay because in a traditional good cop, bad cop situation, what we expect to see is heighten, 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 and then the resolution is the criminal finally breaks, right? And we get that information that we're looking for and we you know, go to trial or save the whomever needs saving or stop the bomb or whatever it is. And in this case, it's heighten, 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 whoa, no, slow way down because the information isn't important, right? He comes back in and gives him the information as an afterthought. That's not the point of the sketch. The point of the sketch is he, the criminal, is there to solve the cop's problems. Yeah, I think that's that's the point I wanted to make with it. I was going to reference uh, something in another sketch, but I'm not going to do that right now. Well, and let's let's go into that good cop, bad cop a little bit, the acting of that. Um, Luke, one of the things that I think is interesting is we're playing on the good cop, bad cop concept that I think we're all familiar with. And they essentially set that up with David Cross and then Bob Odenkirk. And then like halfway through Bob Odenkirk's first line, it's out the window um, because we know that he's bad cop and that he doesn't want to be the bad cop anymore because um, he's been caught off guard that he's the bad cop. He didn't know he was the bad cop. 
And so can you talk about his performance in this scene of even in that first beat of how he goes from being angry to shocked and appalled and then their performances in general through this sketch? This is basically my favorite thing about this sketch is just how good of an actor Bob Odenkirk has become since Mr. Show. Obviously, um, Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul and like The Post with Steven Spielberg. He's an, he's an in-demand Emmy-nominated actor by now. <laughs> you would have never saw that coming back in the no. Mr. Show days when David Cross was the more dynamic performer. But I think in this sketch, Bob is acting circles around both David Cross and Jay Johnston. And it's just so... It's just so fun to see um, these little lines, whether it's easy for him. You know, it just nails the emotion behind those lines. And writing the sketches is half performing a sketch and just nailing the way that each line was meant to go is the other half. And that's always been a strength of these guys. And you see that they're still completely strong 20 years later after Mr. Show started with Bob having improved even, even more. What do you guys think about the other guys, uh, Jay Johnson and David Cross's performances next to Bob's? That's a really good point. So David Cross's performance is consistent with how I still see him performing today. So you made a good point. Bob Odenkirk, he's grown tremendously as an actor who has a real range. But David Cross, when I see him in different productions, he's almost like he's always playing the same character. So um, it's just a neat contrast. He plays that character perfectly in this. It's great for the role. And so he just doesn't show as much growth, which is too bad because he's also talented in his own right. But it's it's an interesting point to make that one became an Emmy-nominated actor and the other... Is Bob Cross Emmy-nominated? David, Sorry, David, David Cross Emmy-nominated? Uh, he might have been for Arrested Development back in the day. I don't think no? so. No? Okay. I remember honestly feeling bad for Bob Odenkirk when David Cross was on Arrested Development that one that one episode where he comes in as a psychiatrist for like half a minute. I'm like, oh, that's too bad. Now it's like, oh, and now Bob Odenkirk is eating David Cross's lunch. It's like, One's up, the other's down. Yeah. It's hilarious. Yeah, I, I, kind of, I, I was looking a little for a little more from Jay Johnston. Um, for his character, my biggest thing was like, why does he care? Um, why does he care about these two people and what's going on between them? Like, if it's not there in the writing, then I feel like the actor should probably make that choice and, and just give like subtle ways to like, you know, yeah, yeah, give like subtle ways to show that he is actually invested in what's going on. Like what? Like so, like um, when he first realizes that he's now caught in this uh, this fight between them, he could just be like, maybe like I, I, I'd see him maybe like reach out and be like, hey, you know, uh, he he said you were this or whatever, and, and I didn't think it was that bad, you know, like and just like kind of be more, I don't know, be like just sell it more. He is called to be the straight man in this, though. Yeah, it's really the right. Bob and David show for well, the emotional performances. I mean, I mean, and that's 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 pretty standard. Uh, it, it was one of the things that actually, in in retrospect, because there's only four episodes of this, so I I was home early yesterday, so I watched all of them. But it, one of the things that I I kind of regret is they they went a little bit farther towards giving more of their ensemble who had developed more of a voice a little bit more to do than they did in Mr. Show. But I'm like, come on, man! You've got you've got Paul F. Tompkins there. You've got Scott Ackerman. You've got now these people who have gone out and had their own careers. I mean, Brian Pesain for crying out loud, you know. So give these you know give these people a little bit more to do. It's it's you know it's not just Mr. Show with Bob and David anymore, but it's just with Bob and David. I know it's just with Bob and David, and that's that's what I should have remembered. It's just they're fifty percent of the title now instead of thirty three percent of it. Uh, you are entirely correct. Even Dino Stephanopoulos. 
Starburns. Starburns. Snuffleupagus. Yeah, Snuffleupagus, Snuffleupagus. right, exactly. Uh, I want to talk about one of my favorite little things that happened in there. I want to talk about the word obsequious. (laughs) There's that word. It's a funny word. (laughs) And as they're going through the sketch, I found that it hit my ear wrong because it was out of place with the rest of the sketch. And then 15 seconds later, they address that it's out of place. And I thought that was so smart. And it's this little almost a mini game of that. And uh, Shoa, can you talk about mini games and when you, so you have your main structure of a sketch, but then sometimes you have these things that are breakoffs and they're not necessarily out of game, but they're kind of a mini beat within one of your bigger beats. Can you talk about the process of, of executing and writing those? Mini games can be a lot of fun, but they're also very tricky. You have to make sure that they're furthering the storyline. A lot of times we'll see sketches where they'll put in a mini game and the writer will think this is just really funny and then it'll confuse audiences because it takes them out of it too much. And it's funny because in this one, you said it did. It took you out of it and you were focused. So somebody at some point recognized that and then had to pull it back in or it didn't work as a mini game or they were committed to the joke. So, yeah, so I love mini games when they work. If they don't work, you can spot it almost immediately because it distracts people from the main plot and pushing the plot forward. Yeah, definitely. You see this all the time with uh, with like young writers where like it's you just know that while they were typing, they had a funny idea. And then all of a sudden, while they were writing, they found another funny idea and then started writing that. And then you're just like, well, you like you basically have two separate sketches. This one actually reeled it back in, which I thought was great too. Yeah. I think often when you start writing sketch comedy, you start writing sketches that are like seven or eight pages long. Um, at least that was my experience. I know that's been the experience of other people. I don't know if that's been your all's experience too. But you start writing them because you do go on these tangents and you think like, oh, I'm just going to pack as many jokes into this as I can. And it's about getting as many jokes on stage as possible. There's also a character element. So you have to look at the mini joke and say, okay, this is funny, but would this character say that? And if they wouldn't say that, or if it's, for example, if they wouldn't use SAT words, are you going to keep it in or would you take it out? Profanity or any kind of, basically, as long as it's aligned with the character, it's okay. But you have to be very conscious of if it's aligned with the character and furthers the story. These characters are broad enough, though. They're just sort of cops. They don't really have names, right? So there's all kinds of fun mini games: obsequious, Mexican tiles, yeah. pill problem. Pill problem, yeah. Homosexual experience in college. Yeah, yeah. which are actually um, themselves the secrets that were confided in Jay Johnston, which he spills to the other. And that actually constitutes the main game of the yeah. Yeah. sketch. Yeah. So there are different ways to look at this. Yeah. It's very sophisticated. Yeah, They're smart dudes. Yeah. It, it is. You know, uh, Shoah brought up something that I think I, I kind of talked about a little bit when um, we were talking about uh, pre-taped Colin show. I would just love to see the evolution of a Bob and David sketch. Like, I would love to see what's in there from the beginning and then what they had to go back to do to figure out to make it better or to fix a problem, to fix a minigame. I, I don't think we're ever going to get to do that, but if uh, I would I know what the they chance. did. They got big. <laughs> <laughs> yes, that's right. The answer to any question in comedy is weed. And one one thing though that one gripe that sort of people have with game uh, is that once you once you set it up, like once Bob Owen Crick says, "Wait, what?" and then and then we see them going back and forth, like the audience then knows what's going to happen next. Like they're 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 already in on the joke, and so and that's why people try to put as many jokes as they can in between beats, so they can like you know surprise the audience and keep it funny but a, but a lot of times like it just it, it muddles it and then like makes it makes it hard to understand but i think all their 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 mini games and their 
the, all their jokes were totally supporting the main game. Yeah, it's a difficult line to walk. All right, Luke, do you have anything, any final thoughts that you want to share with us on this sketch? Obsequious. <laughs> My final thing is just, I, as a longtime fan of Mr. Show, I love the way that they came together for this reunion show. And I love Emmy-nominated, though he is, someone like Bob Odenkirk. I, I think of him as the main writer behind this sketch. I love the idea that this type of stupid sketch is still, like, his brand. It's still, like, yeah. what he identifies with. And he just has to get it out because that's what kind of creative person he is. And once he gets that out, then he can go back out and be uh, Jimmy McGill in uh, what's the, Better Call Saul. Uh, what's, the fi- what's the Fitzgerald dictum? There are no second acts in American lives. That's true. Go. He'll, he'll always be that guy who wrote those jokes, and that will always be a part of him. This podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy troupe Bad Medicine, DC's best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. Visit badmedicinecomedy.com for info about live shows, workshops, and t-shirts for people who love comedy. And today we have our first sketch from Australia. The front fell off comes from the comedy duo John Clark and Brian Daw. Clark and Daw had a satirical segment on the Australian news program, A Current Affair, from 1989 to 1997, and then again on another news program, The 730 Report, after that. In this piece, like in all of their pieces, Daw plays an interviewer, and Clark is playing a senator attempting to downplay the damage that the front falling off an oil tanker has done. Here's a clip. This ship that was involved in the incident off Western Australia this week... Yeah, the one the front fell off? Yeah. Yeah, that's not very typical. I'd like to make that point. Well, how is it untypical? Well, there are a lot of these ships going around the world all the time, and very seldom does anything like this happen. I just don't want people thinking that tankers aren't safe. Was this tanker safe? Well, I was thinking more about the other ones. The ones that are safe? Yeah, the ones the front doesn't fall off. Well, if this wasn't safe, why did it have 80,000 tonnes of oil on it? Well, I'm not saying it wasn't safe. It's just perhaps not quite as safe as some of the other ones. Why? Well, some of them are built so the front doesn't fall off at all. Well, wasn't this built so the front wouldn't fall off? Well, obviously not. How do you know? Well, because the front fell off and 20,000 tons of crude oil. This sketch is very silly, and I think it is distinctly Australian slash New Zealandy. So Clark, uh, while this aired on Australian television, Clark is originally from New Zealand. And I really feel like it's in that tradition, or kind of, I guess, the modern tradition would now be Taika Waititi and Flight of the Concords and Reese Darby. What is it in this sketch that makes it distinctly Australian. Julian? Uh, well, for me, it's just like <laughs> the um, – I don't know which one's which, though. It's the... John Clark is the guy being interviewed and Brian Daw is the interviewer. Got it. All right. So, yeah, um, it's just like for me, it's like they're just their dynamic. While Clark is saying these like ridiculous things um, – was it? Daw. Daw. Daw is kind of just accepting it and being like, really, being like almost like interested. He's like trying to feel like, well, why did the front, why did the why did the front fall off? Well, it hit a wave. It hit a wave. Like it's like it's it's very it's 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 very non-accusatory. And um and that that to me is just like supposedly really nice. I've never been to Australia or New Zealand. I hear they're really nice. So that just to me that's what that what makes it really Australian. Andy, how did you find this sketch? I don't remember how I saw it the first time. Okay. Um, it was probably three or four years ago. And I heard someone say something about the front falling off of something recently, and it like sparked it in my mind. And I thought, this is such a great, silly thing. We should talk about it. Uh, Cho, what did you think of the sketch? 
I, I thought it was really entertaining, but um, I it could have been uniquely Australian, but it's also aligned with like the Veep and the dialogue you'll see in In the Loop. Where it's Armando like, Iannucci. Oh, yeah. Is it, yeah, so it's it's the rapid fire, um, you know, they, they're grounded in reality, but they're saying silly things. And the interviewer is accepting it. He is neutral, but he also understands that this politician is incorrect. So um, it was fun. It was entertaining. I like the accents. I thought that's what made it Australian and New Zealand. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the rapid fire sense, because we've seen these now in like British comedies too, I guess, uh, maybe so it was foreign for sure. Um, but it, it seemed very familiar too, especially in this day and age where real news also seems to ring a similar bell or politicians will say things like this and work in circles. Yeah. And, and, and let's talk about how it's a parody of politicians a little bit. So it's a parody of politicians, but not a specific politician. Um, and I think that can be difficult uh, because when you're parodying a specific politician like you see on Saturday Night Live or something like that, you have tropes or character traits you can latch on to to mimic uh, or parody. When it's just a broad parody of politicians, you have the danger of being too broad with it. Does this work as political satire or is it too broad? Seth? Oh, I think it totally works as political satire. One of the things I was actually uh, going to say is that the um, the stonewalling that that Clark's character does, the repetition of the well, the front fell off, and that that well, that's the problem. That was the problem with this one ship. Is that the other ships are fine, just this one, the front fell off. So just sort of business as usual, everything's fine. Uh, let's keep going. One of the other things I like about Clark's character. Uh, regardless of whether he's a politician or not. I, I did watch a few others after uh, Front Fell Off. Uh, uh, all Cats or Birds? Uh, I didn't see, I didn't watch All Cats or Birds, but I, I did watch the one about uh, quantitative easing and then the one about the 2008 financial collapse. But just that, um, oh my goodness, I have lost. I'm sorry, I threw you off. I threw you off. It is fine, it is fine. I was, uh, yeah, it, it, it's just this fantastic way he has of getting a little bit more heated than the interview actually calls for as the interview goes on, um, where he gets slightly more defensive uh, about stuff. Uh, I think probably because the interview has gone on for long enough that he's saying things that even he as the character recognizes as stupid. I think uh, the got towed outside, out, outside of the environment. Yeah, nothing there but sea and fish. <laughs> Nothing. <laughs> Just And, and 20,000 tons of crude oil. And he, and he has to defend that. Yeah, for my money, the the Australianness of it is it's the pacing, the tone, and the emphasis that certain lines and words are given. You could see a similar sketch done in the States. It wouldn't be the same thing. Like, I don't think you would see a sketch that was political at that pace. You do see it in shows or... Um, uh, in the in movie, in the thick of it was a British show, and they did a they did a sort of British American co-production movie a while back. In the loop. In the loop. There we go. Yeah, um, which show also mentioned. <laughs> yes, I forgot. I saw the movie, forgot the title, but it's it's also um, you will find that pacing in in Britain, but I don't think you find the pacing in the subject matter in the states. That's a good point. So the pacing is definitely not there. And then in the U.S., we were actually having a group meeting yesterday, and somebody brought up a political um, a political sketch. And Andy, I think you asked, would this work in the U.S.? And I think with the political sketches, there's so many now that if it's not targeted and if it's generic, we've come to expect more. 
So the generic stuff doesn't work because there's so much of it out there already that it has to be really targeted and relevant to the current time frame. Yes, sorry. Oh, I, I just wanted to, when I was uh, looking this sketch up, apparently there was a whole Snopes article about it because there was a, it was going around on the internet as being an actual interview with an actual politician. Nice. <laughs> yeah, so uh, apparently there was a, a bit of a movement to get it recognized as a specific politician rather than oh, sort of a generic parody. Uh, I think in some of their other sketches, they are parodying specific people, yeah. um, but not... In this one, Luke, I think uh, one of the things I like in this sketch, not I think one of the things I like, I know one of the things I like in this sketch is the dry silliness of it. It's the combination of dry and silly. That's what I think is that kind of distinctly Australian and New Zealander voice. When you're doing comedy that's dry, how do you approach that as an actor differently from when it can be big and bombastic? Oh, delivering a line that is maximum silliness with maximum composure is the ultimate, right? Yeah. So <laughs> um, when you write things as I do, I write character monologues for the character show produced by Dojo Comedy. I fit in as much as I can, and then I practice rec reciting them as straight-faced as I possibly can, and that's definitely what makes this sketch special. My read on the Australian-ness thing um, since I did a drink abroad program there in college, very uh, nice. Was that is only is not like from an American perspective, but I know that British people see Australian people as like burnt out uh, airheads, huh? Or as like country bumpkins. So I think that the silliness of this sketch is partly them like owning that. Like, of course, we're going to do a news program about something as stupid. And, and the, the kind of the clipped phrasing of the front fell off is also kind of rings like an Australian, New Zealand thing to me, too, that they just have these really clipped uh, phrases that they say. And then it's like abrupt ending. And linguistically, it's not, that rang to be uh, Australian, even if their accents weren't that thick. You could have been mistaken for being British. But uh, ultimately, Aussie mate. Yeah. Aye. And let's talk about that phrase, the front fell off. Yeah. We've talked about phrases before and what makes a good catchphrase, but let's let's go into the front fell off. They say it, I don't know, 10 or 12 times in two minutes. Why is the front fell off a funny thing to say? Because it is a bald statement of fact. There is no attempt to politicize it or soft pedal it. It is simply that the front of the boat fell off. It's also funny because he doesn't use nautical terminology. <laughs> it, it, it's a guy talking about something that he knows in the abstract and maybe had something to do with the, the specific legislation, but he doesn't know the terms. I think it's great. He doesn't know a lot about it. He says, like, you know, there are rigorous maritime standards, like building standards. Cardboard's out. You can't build it. There's a minimum crew requirement. It's, I'm sure it's one. Um, and I, I think that that element of it being so wrong, like, it's wrong and it's simple. And it's also, um, I just find it hard to imagine how the front of a boat could fall off. <laughs> I think that's where I just try to think, like, what does a boat with the front falling off look of it? Like, you can think of the Titanic, but... That's a boat hitting an iceberg and a catastrophic disaster happening. It's not the front falling off, which is just just silliness for silliness. But like Seth said, it's repeated as a bald statement of fact again and again in answer to these questions. So much so that you're like, why is uh, Daw, the interviewer, keep asking the same question? I, I noticed that the interview, normally you're used to this type of sketch or the, the interviewer is the straight character. 
and the interviewee is the wild character. I, I would argue that the interviewer is the dumb one here <laughs> and that the politician, by saying, well, the front fell off. What are you talking about? Yeah. The front fell off. So that's that was, the fact. Exactly. Yeah. And that, that's, that's what kind of threw me too a little bit is that because like Clark, Clark believes, he believes what he's saying. He believes it to be true. And Daw. 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 Yep. Daw. Daw. He doesn't really challenge him in any way. He kind of just like, it, it, like he keeps asking questions, but like it, he, it, he, he takes no position. And so like, that, that's so like, it kind of, the dynamic with it kind of threw me a little bit, but it's still really funny. But you know, just definitely, I'm glad you think it's funny. Thank you. <laughs> no. Um, so, uh, show up nearly every line in this sketch from Daw is a question. Mm-hmm. He doesn't have any commentary, he just asks questions. Is this a good format for an interview style sketch, or should the interviewer have had more of a voice? So, I interpreted the interviewer differently than Julian. So Julian thought he didn't have an opinion, and as a very passive person, I feel like you can convey opinions through questions, don't you think? Oh, look <laughs> at what she did there. Gross. So, that's, uh, <laughs> so I, that's what I thought the interviewer was doing. I'm just like, he's bringing it back, and he's asking the questions to point out how ludicrous this politician sounds. So through the question format, he, he was taking a position. He was taking the position where I'm going to let you reveal through your own words the flaw in your in your ways. Um, so that's so that format did work for me. I thought the question format was really good. It, it helped with the pacing. Seth pointed out mm. the pacing is really rapid fire. And with the short, quick questions, that helps um, short questions, short responses, and then go back and forth. Andy, if I could throw out a non-passive question. So with the pacing that fast, where do you, they put in gaps for the audience to laugh? Or are they not expecting laughs? Or are they okay talking over the laughs? So... As a, I guess a slow American, Luke, you pointed out that, like, they think Australians are kind of slow, but now I feel even more silly as an American. Like, I didn't know where to laugh or when to laugh because I didn't want to miss any of the words. I don't think it was taped in front of a live studio audience, right? No. Oh, it probably so, wasn't. So right. just from a video standpoint then, yeah. um, do you think they, they have to, I guess they don't have to take it into consideration. They just can go fast. And I think this for stage two, I'm fine with the audience missing jokes if you've packed it through. Uh, like from my perspective as a writer, if you've packed it full of jokes and so, sometimes it's just going rapid fire, it's okay with me if people miss some things because not everybody's going to miss everything. And I think that's that's why you have a lot of shows. I think 30 Rock is a really good example of that where there are jokes that you don't get until the third or fourth time watching the show. You start picking up on stuff because it's so dense. I don't think the breaks, I don't think any kind of sense of breaks are necessary because it's such a, the humor is so strong. That's a good point. And I, I'm glad you pointed out that it was for a video because that, that took a step back. So we're, you're right. For sketch, you might put in breaks, make people laugh, but then for video, you don't have to worry about that. It was it was for video, though, but for a, a news segment? Yeah. So, so this was aired as part of a news program, which is kind of crazy to think about. You know, let's say it's 15 years ago and Peter Jennings is doing the news. And then the last three minutes are, I don't know, Dave Chappelle doing a bit. Yeah. So, it, so it, it almost is like a live. It's almost like it's live because people are going to watch it once. And then, like, unless they catch the news cycle again, if they, re, if they re-air it, then it's, it's like, you're, like you're, yeah, you're seeing it once. I'd actually prefer a, a small satire segment at the end of our straight news programs as opposed to the human interest stuff that they usually do. I think that'd be that would appeal more to my tastes. I might actually start watching the news again. Actually, no, I won't. It's terrible. <laughs> <laughs> All right, wrap it up. Are there any any final thoughts on this sketch? Anything people didn't like and would want to change? I think the ending's a little weak. 
um, the the car with the front falling off. I think the <laughs> setup for the ending is great. The um, could you call me a cab? Didn't you come in a Commonwealth car? Um, that's a great thing, and I don't think they needed to do the, well, yeah, but the front fell off. I thought that was a little weak, but what do people think of the end? Well, because I watched more than one of these, they tend to do that. They have, and this was actually, I watched, like I said, I watched three. This was about in the middle in terms of keeping what was in the sketch going forward. And I will say it is, it's almost sort of a vaudevillian ending. It's like, okay, all right. Oh, we knew that joke was coming. Waka, waka, waka. Uh, the, the one that they did with the, um, the 2008 financial crisis, there's, you know, uh, Clark's like, oh, well, can uh, we have uh, $700 billion right now? That was a terrible accent, but anyway. Uh, and then when uh, Dahl won't give it to him. He says, Mom, <laughs> he's not letting me play with his stuff. And that's the end of the sketch. And that was, I'm like, that is really weird and out of left field. The quantitative easing one is great because it's based off, uh, the quantitative easing scheme is essentially the government's going to print more money. Daw refers to it as fake money. Clark says it's not fake money and then calls a banker friend and reveals that, yeah, somebody who's not in the banking industry has figured it out right then and they've got to think of something else and then goes into, well, have you heard of Rumpelstiltskin? No? Okay, great. We'll start from there, which is, I thought, more, more well integrated into the body of the sketch. This one was about halfway between the two. It was fine, but again, a little sticky. All right, it's time for the end of the show. Luke, as the guest, could you come up with a rating system for us to judge the sketches that we talked about today? Right, back to the with Bob and David sketch. Uh, I think we should use fucks yelled by Bob Odenkirk at the top of his voice like he does in that sketch. Bob's normal catchphrase is yelling goddammit at the top of his voice, but in this one he happens to go, fuck! And let's just give each sketch however many of those we deem appropriate. How many fucks? Well, Luke, let's start with you. With Bob and David, uh, the interrogation room sketch, how many fucks would you give this sketch? I think it's absolutely perfect. Ten fucks, Andy. <laughs> nice. <laughs> Seth? Well, this is interesting to me. Uh, these sketches are, um, they don't have a whole lot in common, but we are comparing them on the same show. So I'm actually going to go ahead and give this one nine fucks. Out of a possible ten... Okay. Because it was really, really good, but I think I like Clark and Dahl a little bit better. Oh, don't give that away now. I haven't given away my rating for it. Give away, give away, give away now. For me, I would give this sketch eight fucks, I think. Um, I found that um, uh, the interrogee character, uh, he fell a little flat for me throughout. Uh, Shaw, what did you think? Is 10 the highest we can go? You can go as high as you want, but... Okay, I give it nine fucks. Um, just because I love the classic sketch approach, taking a classic sketch and just updating it a bit for some jokes. That's just so great. So it gets nine bucks. Julian? I'd fuck Bob Owenkirk four times. <laughs> <laughs> I, I because... should have known that was coming. <laughs> One for each episode of With Bob and David. <laughs> yeah. No, I mean, because, like, first, just because he's a star and obviously... You're a star fucker? I'm a star fucker. And then, two, like, he... I just felt like there's two unusual things here happening at the same time and two unusual ha things happening at the same time in bed is it kind of throws me all right i i, I get it all right kind uh, of and now let's uh go through and do uh the front fell off Shoah, how many fucks would you give the front fell off i would give it five um 
I have a very high standard now for political humor. And so um, maybe five years ago, uh, no, actually, I know exactly one. Eight years ago, I would have given it probably 10. But now I have to give it five. What if you knew the sketch first aired in 1990? Oh, oh yeah, then I would have a solid 12. Oh, a solid 12. That's good to know. Luke, how many fucks would you give this sketch? Uh, I was very impressed by it. It's built around some really fun wordplay and performed really well. Yeah, the ending's kind of a mess, but uh, eight fucks, Andy. Eight fucks, Luke. Julian? Um, I'd fuck them both nine times each, I think. <laughs> I like both their performances. I, but like uh, Clark kind of introduced uh, the environment thing I thought was really funny, but it was kind of like a new concept for me that's inside the world of that sketch. So I would like to have seen that maybe earlier and explored more because just exploration in the bedroom is kind of key kind of Seth, Seth? 20,000 fucks one for each uh, gallon of crude oil <laughs> oh I thought you were going to go leagues under the sea for some reason oh no 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 that would be when we were discussing a French sketch oh, it could be 20,000 fucks under the sea that's true with a giant squid that's the porn parody right that's the the anime porn parody of 20,000 leagues under a sea it's oh, the hentai version and real quick to pull this back <laughs> yeah. uh <laughs> I would give this sketch 10 fucks. It makes me laugh. I've seen it like 10 times. Still makes me laugh. I really like it. Thank you for joining us for another episode of Sketch Nerds. A special thanks to our guest, Luke Hennig, for being on today's show. Luke, where can we find you online or out in the world? Ooh, find The Lodge on Facebook. We perform all the time. Come to the character show at Dojo Comedy. I do it as much as I can. And coming this summer from Washington Improv Theater, see me in In Lieu of Flowers. It's an improvised funeral. So. Is that serious improv? Or is it like, a, is it going to be more like a drama? It is a blend of both. I don't know how they're going to turn out, Andy. All right. Well, they I'm, haven't I'm told I'm me yet. They just told me to show up. And I'm plug excited. this on a podcast. listeners please like share and subscribe if you have a sketch you are interested in us breaking down please send it to us we'd love to do that you can find out more about sketch nerds and bad medicine at badmedicinecomedy.com slash sketch nerds where you can also find links to the sketches that we discussed today you can find this podcast and previous episodes wherever you get your podcasts for Luke Hennig Seth Alcorn Julian Morgan and Shoa Appleman I'm Andy Weld Thanks for listening to Sketch Nerds. This episode was produced by Isaiah Hedden and recorded in Washington, D.C. The closing music tracks were provided by SoundtrackForEverything.com. All clips in this podcast were used in compliance with the U.S. Copyrights Act, Fair Use Exemption, for criticism and commentary. The Sketch Nerds podcast is brought to you by the sketch comedy group Bad Medicine, D.C.'s best sketch comedy about the worst of humanity. For showtimes, videos, and funny t-shirts, please visit Bad Medicine Comedy dot com.